Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Well, what do you think? Well, I'm glad you're not a genius. He's a sick man, Bob. There's something wrong with him. There's nothing the matter with his mind, except that it's superior. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, there has never been a better time not to be a creepy scumbag. With wave after wave of harassment allegations every single day and more coming, how are you sleeping at night? With my penis safely tucked inside my underwear. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not just whipping it out? You know... Whenever I do want to whip it out, like to go to the bathroom, I find it's pretty, you know, it's, I I don't have like the smooth motion that some of these people apparently have (laughs) where like from one moment to the next, it's out all of a sudden. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't know whether, (laughs) whether I'm doing it wrong, if I just am buying the wrong kind of pants. Yeah. Like Um, you need a quicker draw. (laughs) (laughs) So in this episode, we are going back to Thomas Nagel one more time. This time to talk about his essay, Fragmented Value, and his view that there are five fundamental and incommensurable sources of value that sometimes leads to moral conflicts or practical conflicts that can't be resolved through some sort of systematic process. Also, at the end of the first segment, We're going back to a very special Thanksgiving tradition, although we've only done it once before. But my stepmother, who many listeners know, um, Christina Hoff Summers, the factual feminist herself, she will join me for what will likely be a slightly to moderately drunken segment. That's at least part of the tradition. This hasn't been recorded yet, but I know she has a piece she's writing for the New York Daily News that warns against a possible sex panic. And speaking of that, the last episode, we uh, the first segment, we talked about the, the latest wave of sexual harassment <laughs> allegations, and we talked about stand-up comedy and how we would feel if one of our favorite stand-up comics was, was implicated, and we didn't mention Louis C.K. because just three or four hours after we finished recording, that's when that story came out. For the record, it's not so much that I want to keep talking about this. It's that uh, that I feel like we have a specific obligation to our listeners <laughs> to talk about it, given how much we've praised uh, Louis C.K. and we're fans of his humor, and and in fact, Did you say we we're made, fans of his humor, or we're well, fans well, of well, I wasn't 
intending to say we are no longer fans, but merely to say that we had expressed that we were fans. And specifically, I was talking about, you know, we had this discussion that I've seen a few other people have now, which is what is what is sort of a your ethical duty um, in supporting people who have who have, let's just say, you know, beyond allegations, but actually been shown to or admitted to doing some of this stuff. Um, and, and we were saying how it kind of depends on the art. I, I use the Cosby example of how, how sort of the Cosby allegations have ru- ruined Cosby for me. Like I can't watch the Cosby show anymore. So the Louis CK thing coming out, I think pr- posed two new problems. One, am I willing to stand by my claim? And two, what do we make of the, I think, real difference between drugging somebody and raping them and what Louis C.K. did and whether his apology counts for anything in – at least in this context? Like will it, will it stop me from being uncomfortable at his comedy? So drugging a woman and raping her versus asking women who you have some sort of power and influence over – if they want to watch you masturbate, are are definitely in different moral ballparks. I mean, I, I that that is that that's a big difference. And it although they both are in the general category of harassment slash assault, the desire to condemn these things I think is a good thing. And I, am I I'm even swayed by arguments that the reasons that more and more allegations are coming out is simply that we actually might have higher moral standards now and people are feeling empowered to actually say when they have been harmed. So all that said, um, it poses a real problem in public discourse when even the mere suggestion that there might be gradations of assault um, are met with... uh, accusations that we're not taking it seriously because what i really want to do is take very seriously the accusations against louis ck and yet nonetheless say i would put much more energy in condemning the actions of bill cosby right and And, harvey weinstein and harvey weinstein and so the question is to what end it just totally depends on on what your goal might be i suppose and my goal would really be to properly communicate the extent to which this is an, a, a horrible act. And, and I think it's valuable information to say, this is something that you really deserve to be never allowed to be around anybody else for. And this is something that you might say, be punished in some measure, but not be a pariah for the rest of your life. Well, so, and I feel yeah. like we've lost the ability to to calibrate our our whatever reactive attitudes because of, of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people are conflating Louis CK and Bill Cosby or Louis CK and Harvey Weinstein to the extent that there's debate, it's it's not that he's just as bad as Harvey Weinstein. It's it's still that wait, you know, what he did crosses a threshold that makes it, you know, wrong for FX to continue showing his show, Louis, and to and and for Netflix to go through with his second stand-up special, and for HBO to have him on whatever benefit John Stewart was doing. Yeah, and I and I'm and I have mixed feelings about that. It's 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 definitely creepy and weird and 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 
and aggressive what he did. And I don't even get it. Like, I just, this is the thing. Like, I, when yeah. this happened, I texted you, like, what What the fuck? Like, <laughs> am I the only one that doesn't want to, like, pull out, like, my dick and masturbate in front of women? Like, that, like, just, the whole, the, the whole point of masturbation is that it is something that you don't need other people to be watching you for uh, <laughs> while you're doing it. And so, like, I, I, I but it's such a, it's such a, a it's I don't think we know how to handle it quite yet, which is fine because it's there does seem like the debate is suffering in a way that makes it frustrating. But I I can't really figure out how to approach it's, it it's, better. It's such it's such a it's such a complicated topic because I do I agree with you. I think people distinguish between, you know, roof roofie Cosby rape and and louis ck what doesn't seem to be um there there don't seem to be clear rules about the when we understand the difference in in severity to calibrate the magnitude of the response to that difference in severity and and it's a hard thing to do right because as we've talked probably ad nauseum um about things like social media is that any one person expressing expressing uh, disapproval can then get sort of just a hundred thousand other people and and there's where a company like a Netflix or an HBO or an FX is probably right I'm pretty cynical about their reasons I yeah. think their reasons are simply business reasons I don't think they're making any moral stance um, if they were making moral stances they would probably have eliminated a lot of people a long time ago um and so so there doesn't seem to be a good a a good solution to the proper calibration of our response because i don't know that how many options we have right i mean here's here's one thing i can say i didn't agree with the response that people that people gave so when he put out his apology you and i talked about this we both thought it was fairly sincere and there were there there was a certainly a large percentage of people who thought it was crafted and a, another form of sort of self promotion and rationalization and disingenuous in a lot of ways and then people started talking about his shows and his stand up um you know where he i mean he essentially confesses in multiple right. different genres of art that um <laughs> that that he's doing these things and people were were saying that's just him trying to show that he's morally self-aware you know like almost like he's preparing people for when these allegations inevitably come out right where i really do think he's wrestling with it probably in 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 complicated and somewhat interesting ways like interesting artistic ways so then there is a side of me that thinks you want this stuff out now like this is it adds another dimension to to looking for it to to looking at it that way but then but i think people if you go into it with this lens it, it's it's no he's trying to pull one over on you he's trying to deceive you in some way and maybe he is you know maybe i'm just i like his stuff so much that maybe i fell for it you know like i'm totally right. open to that possibility as well right and uh, you know i think this is why I, uh, I i thought we should talk about it because we we've 
covered some of the ground, but the real test is, I think, um, how we deal with it as some as people who are inclined to defend him. But I think that there is this further this further complication that what we're doing in in some of these cases is we think that we have some sort of accurate assessment of the kind of person that Louis C.K. is from his art. And I think that goes back to the nature of that kind of art. Like it seems like I don't disagree with you. I read I read his comedy about that stuff as perhaps indicative of his own struggle. And um, and I read his apology as sincere and somebody who is who is sort of admitted his weaknesses. And the question is, would I would I come? Am I giving him a pass? Am I judging him? in the way that I am, which I think is a sincere but wrong and Sympathetic, person. charitable. S- yeah. yeah. If it were Woody Allen, who I'm already inclined to not like. Because he's right. Jewish. Um, and I think that... <laughs> I think that that's the, one of the toughest things. How do you judge the sincerity of a celebrity? I remember, do you remember when Kramer tried to apologize for using the N-word? Yeah. And... <laughs> And it was it was so bad in the way that it came across. He was awkward and stumbling. And I remember he was trying to say something along the lines that he had plenty of black friends, but he ended up saying he had plenty of Afro-American friends, which was just like anachronistic. And it just betrayed a little bit of something. And so the question what but one practical question is what? does Louis C.K. deserve if the most severe of the allegations might be true, which again are not Bill Cosby allegations, but what, what, what is the most severe allegation that like, I mean, from what I hear is like that he blocked a door and wouldn't let them leave and was forcing them to watch him. I think uh, that he admitted. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, which is horror, which is, yeah. No, like think about it. Like it's disgusting. Yeah. That I, and, I, I think it's even in the etymology of the word, like masturbation. Doesn't that mean like self, like alone? Um, no, I, I believe that there are two categories in Pornhub, one called solo <laughs> yeah. and the other one called masturbation, uh, because two people can masturbate next to each other. That's true. So, so I think okay. as conceptual philosophers stand corrected, you learn something <laughs> on this podcast. Um, but, but, I, but, but on Pornhub, I, I do, they are doing it consensually. <laughs> masturbating in front of each other consensually. Oh, hopefully. Um, I'm trying to be an optimist and here and say that that this, these waves of allegations are, while difficult in the moment, will hopefully teach m- men that these norms are not acceptable anymore. I just think that we're it's it, we're we're going through some growing pains of how to do that. And I think that some people might actually be yeah. uh, un- unwitting victims of, of an overly severe response, whether that's Louis CK or not, but George Takei is another example, right? So I don't know, Sulu from Star Trek, somebody accused him of, of groping him when he was drunk or asleep. And Sulu's response was one of shock and disbelief. And, and again, a sincere, I think a sincere, statement that he would never do that to be fair so, it's probably like that 150th sulu because <laughs> he's gone in the teleporting machine in the tele- yeah so that it's should, not that like, should be his defense <laughs> that should be his defense <laughs> like if you were killed 150 times over and over again you might like rope a dude 
Right. And, th- and I should say, like, at this point, we really it, we really do need to hear from from uh, women with opinions on this. Like, I feel you don't think like, we can <laughs> just sort of put ourselves in that, like, take that perspective with utter like, complete 100 uh, percent accuracy. <laughs> OK, I'm a woman now. I'm a woman. No, now. but but in, I'm glad that women have written about this. And and I don't think that it is a man versus woman thing, because I think plenty of women have written very, very clear things about about uh about this and that this is a moral panic i think this is a growing pain for moral progress oh is that how's that how's that vbw no context you don't think he's not gonna quote that (laughs) yeah you never (laughs) see i've been blessed with the moral luck to not have any desire to do some of like most of these things, like nobody, well, no desire to have a woman watch me take a shower and no desire to just like whip out my dick and in front of a woman who is, had no interest in me doing that. Or even if she did have interest in me doing that and start jerking off, I like just don't, don't have it. Like, and, and so am I praiseworthy for that? Like, I no, just like um, I it, these aren't this is something I have no inclination to do in the first place. I think I am praiseworthy and virtuous i i think you're blameworthy for somehow making the conversation about your personal inclinations <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's what's really important here in the end it's, it's whether <laughs> i would assault a woman in that particular way I, I i think that uh that um that there is no um real moral difference between assaulting somebody with your very very peculiar fetish Versus assaulting them with your um, very standard, well understood, and shared, widely shared sexual inclinations. Even just assaulting in general, I do think, like, this, I wonder if it's. Okay, last question, and then we'll go to the break. <laughs> we're, we're talking about fragmented value, by the way. Um, yes. All these allegations right now are coming out against people who uh, have been in power, like people who are powerful in the industry that they're in. So there's two possible explanations for this. One is, well, that's the only ones people care about. But there could also be something like, okay, people get powerful and then all of a sudden some of these inclinations, which, as I said, I don't have, kick in. So let's say I got powerful. Would I all of a sudden now want to like jerk off in front of a woman or would I yeah. or have her watch actually, me take a shower? I I think so. I actually think so. I think that 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 in fact there is something about being in power that probably leads you to both s- stretch your imagination in different ways, right? Like you like you got to imagine uh people like R Kelly who, you know, who who wanted to pee on somebody or whatever like i agree with you like i've never had the inclination to pee on anybody i'm not claiming any moral praise for not having that inclination clearly but i do think that there is a particular way in which having that kind of power and to be honest it probably derives from the fact that um, they've been able to do that with a lot of people and then find themselves in situations where all of a sudden they can't or somebody actually says no and then they are uh, they don't know what to do. They're like, but but wait, everybody else does it. And, and I think the only way to test this is for you, the listener, and by you, I mean the outside world, to confer power on me. But <laughs> I maintain that should I become powerful, 
I'm still not going to be inclined. This is what I think right now. Of course, this is probably what you know Harvey Weinstein right. thought and Louis C.K. thought. But I maintain that I am not going to want to do some of these weird, creepy, scumbaggish yeah, things to win. But, but, but again, I mean, you might be like you might be inclined to to try to do whatever it is you want to do, right? It just happens to be that your thing isn't jerking off in in front of them. But like, it, but. I think one real take-home message is that as you acquire power um, through our wide audience of, of uh, adoring fans, you <laughs> might actually find Harris fan, but yes. <laughs> yes. That, that it's important to think like, that you are capable of that action. Because if you f- like, I feel like if, if I'm not worried that I might actually be capable of that, that I will be more likely to find myself in a situation where I cross the line and I don't want to be that. And I take seriously that I am a, a a man, a human being who has a set of desires that might conflict with others. And whether it be uh, making your grad student do more of the work and taking credit for it, or whether it be assuming that a woman wants to sleep with you when she doesn't and being more, more coercive than you would normally like this is to me, it's just as, as power accrues that you are, probably going to find yourself in more situations where you can take advantage of people. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, I, I have a, I agree. You have to be on your guard. You have to be, this is like Plato said, you have to get your soul in order. Um, if you're going <laughs> to, because it, it can be corrupted in so many different ways. So you have to be constantly vigilant. I think. Right. I also do think that there are <laughs> a lot of people end. that, that seem to handle power pretty well. And I don't know if it's just pure moral willpower or if it's just they don't want to take advantage of women. Like you just there, – there might just be a subset of men. Um, fortunately, it doesn't seem like it's as big as we would hope that has no interest in abusing your power over women. Like you just don't want – like that's not – it doesn't turn you on. It doesn't like – you know. So here's here's an honest question. Yeah. Do you ever think that you've made a woman uncomfortable well, she, with with your like expressing sexual desire? I, I don't know if I'm going to answer that that question. <laughs> um, that's that's all I'm saying is that like the more opportunities you get, the more likely you might be. No, but I I mean like the very possibility that they felt something like. Yeah, like you don't have to answer. You don't, but I think it's the same question as as uh, whether or not you would um, you would buckle under the pressure to to shock somebody in a Milgram experiment. I think that it, that anybody who immediately right. answers no because I've never had that feeling is probably going to underestimate the the possibility that right. maybe you're drunk. I agree. Maybe you, yeah. yeah. So I I take it that this is some way of alluding to your partially examined life. Appearances on situation, the yeah. power of or, the situation, but or or my career as a social psychologist, which is <laughs> my twenty twenty some odd years. Okay, let's now turn to this segment, which again hasn't yet been recorded, but special guest Christina Hoff Summers, she's going to join me, and then we'll have the break, and then after the break. Dave and I will be back to talk about Thomas Nagel and fragmented values. Welcome to a very bad wizard. Very, very bad in this case. <laughs> a, a Thanksgiving tradition. 
well, it's 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 it, we did it once. It didn't go well, <laughs> no. and now we're gonna do it again, yeah. mate. And we'll see if this comes out at all. I'm here with Christina Hoff Summers, the factual feminist. Yes, I'm here. The rape apologist oh. of the family, stepmother of the very bad wizard, Tamler. Yes, this is actually by popular demand. Um, to some extent. Not my fans, his, but that's fine. We're going to do a little segment, a Thanksgiving segment. We've been out to dinner. and It didn't go it well. It didn't go well. <laughs> no. Like my brother started a fire. And <laughs> Jen, my wife, was out in the middle of the street looking for a possum. She thought she saw an opossum. Yeah, she's well, been hallucinating. Okay. Anyway, so you think, and you have a, uh, Christina, as many of you know, is the Factual feminist, quote unquote. Don't say it that way. See? No, factual, quote unquote, feminist. Of <laughs> what? <laughs> and she thinks that what's going on right now after the Harvey Weinstein, John Lasseter, Louis C.K., celebrity Spaces, sex monsters. Yeah, that the, we are in a moral panic right now. That this is now that it's good, right? Do you concede that it's good that men are being called out for sexual assault? Let's start right, with already, that. already, okay. you've misrepresented my position. I did not say that it was a moral panic. I said there was a risk. sex panic. There was a, a sex panic, yeah. and I said there's a risk. That this new, this great awakening, because I do think there's a raised awareness, and that that we could be entering a time where there's going to be a more respectful and equitable workplace for women, for everyone. But there is a possibility that it could devolve into panic, and there is already panic in the air. So, give me an example of the panic in the air. Okay, uh, are you aware that the Girl Scouts, after it was disclosed that after the Harvey Weinstein scandals they sent out a, a, a warning to parents that their daughters don't owe anyone a hug they warn parents don't tell your daughter to hug grandma and grandma don't because that teaches that she owes another person physical affection just because they brought her a gift do you agree that that's a little over the top that girl scouts shouldn't hug their grandparents yes yeah do you think that my granddaughter eliza shouldn't hug me because i give her a gift well, what's the gift? Well, maybe some Jimmy Choo shoes <laughs> for her prom. I don't think you get, deserve a hug for Jimmy Choo shoes. Jimmy Choo. I think you have to get... So here's my position on the Girl Scout. I, I think the gift has to be at a certain level to get a hug. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Let's move on to other examples. All right. So we had a New York Times writer... Uh, Farhad Manju is a New York Times writer, and he said he sent out. Okay. And if you don't know who he is, he's a New York Times major, major personality writer. And he said, "I seriously wonder how all women don't regard all men as monsters to be constantly feared." Okay, do you believe that you think you're a monster? Should I be terrified? <laughs> do you, would you agree that this suggests that there is panic in the air and that people are going a little overboard? Yes, it's it's the true that we have discovered that there are a lot of male predators, especially in Hollywood. But w what's overboard? Like, the, what's uh, going no. on that's overboard? So, like, girl so, scouts in panic. Okay, 
But girls, what do you mean? Like, are they running in the streets? Are they lighting stuff on fire? Are they <laughs> like, what's like, what's the panic? Okay, well then you just have to know what a moral panic is, and a moral panic or a sex panic, as I'm calling it, it's just a that there's a kind of generalized sense of danger. Because there's a a group of people, or really a mass movement in response to some perceived moral threat to society, and the threats are vaguely defined and wildly exaggerated, and they breed chaos. What do you think is wildly exaggerated? Like what? Like so? Let's just take a specific example. Louis C.K. Was anything exaggerated with him? Because I am. Although we disagree on a lot of this stuff, not as much as you disagree with Pizarro, who's our the SJW of the podcast. Yeah, he's a little but, bit of a but snowflake. The <laughs> Louis C.K. Do you think that the response to him has been proportionate? No, I think that uh, he has some kind of a sexual, you know, some kind of a disorder, <laughs> and these women. Pizarro. He, well, I'm wondering about Pizarro. I know. But uh, I'm thinking with Louis C.K., just different categories. That's the other thing is everyone's conflating and, and, and collapsing d- distinctions. When you ha- Harvey Weinstein was a sex monster. Louis C.K. had some kind of weird, dis- I think, a sexual disorder, kind of maybe an exhibitionist. Those people are troublesome pests, and you, you, know, you rid yourself of them, you run out of the room. But do, you know, he needs help. He doesn't really need to be, become a non-person forever. But who's suggesting that he be a non-person? Like, what the things that are, people are suggesting is that he doesn't, like, he gets his show off the air, or he doesn't do a special, or... Okay, well, my, here's my point. I, as I said, there is raised consciousness, raised awareness, and there's a possibility that we could just move to a higher level. There'll be just higher expectations in in workplace for dignity, for respect, but... You don't want to turn it into some sort of hyper-puritanical panic. And I see signs of that. And I'll give you a better example because apparently I haven't convinced you. Do you, do you know this, uh, this news, this, I don't know, it was a post, uh, a, a Google Doc that was circulated on the Internet of the sh- shitty men in media list? And there were 78 men in media that were listed uh, with you know, the, and then people kept adding to it. By the end, I think it was seventy-eight, and they were accused of some of them of serious crimes of rape and stalking, others of, of of, you know, sort of uncomfortable, weird lunches, and entering my DMs with strange messages. And they were all put there, and they were all marked with a you know a scarlet H or a scarlet R. And what is a, a H and R stand for? <laughs> harasser and rapist? Oh. And there was no way for them to defend themselves. If someone tried to defend them, they would be accused of not believing women. And this whole idea to me, this is just so fanatical that you must believe women. No, you must take them seriously, treat them with dignity, but then find out if it's true. And in some cases, it might not be. It's possible that women can lie, not because they are women, because they are human beings, and human beings sometimes lie. So you're accusing no rape, one. V- rape victims <laughs> of lying. No. I'm, well, okay. Have you heard of, uh, of University of Virginia and what happened with the lacrosse, I, or the lacrosse team at your university, Duke University? You just seem to care about that. It's not my university. It's where I went to grad school. You, well, your grad yes. school. Yes. No, of course, right? I mean, I, I, but so here's my honest opinion, all joking aside. Okay. 
I don't think anybody's saying that these things aren't sometimes made up because they are, and we have documented proof of that. But I do think that this latest wave of allegations has convinced some people, myself included, that it it actually was a more serious issue than I thought. You you know what? You know what? I agree with you. I completely agree with you. Wow. And even me, the factual feminist who sometimes thinks these, these pathologies are exaggerated, I do think it's more serious than I thought. But I think if we are going to solve the problem, then we need to be careful about not exaggerating it, not implicating all men in this atrocity, making distinctions. We are all complicit. <laughs> And uh, that, and and that's my worry. So it's not that I say we are in a sex panic, but I see worrisome signs of you know anonymous lists, and these seem to be proliferating now. Uh, but I mean, I, oh, how, I, would you, I am, how would you like to be on an anonymous list? You suddenly your name is there, and there no, are things. But, there are things that I, could I, get you on a list. All I'm saying about are the those, li- about the anonymous list, like you're the only kind of, person I've heard about this list from. Nobody I know, like oh, nobody I, knows I, about I, the media. The, the nobody knows men about the media. Google Doc that oh, you're. My, God, Tamla, you see, this is the problem. That this is I, n- all right. Now I understand why we don't see eye to eye on how much of a problem is this kind of creeping fanaticism. Is because you do not keep up with what's going on, and the shitty man list that's been written <laughs> yeah. about all over. That's been because I'm not like keeping up with all the Russian bots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did you hear that, ladies? He's calling you Russian bots. The women, some of them, the women on that list, legitimately named oppressors, and you're denying that, so you're already in trouble. I'm dismissing all women as <laughs> Russian bots. Oh, God. I, look, I agree. I actually think that, um, I mean, I don't agree with the things you just said, well, but yeah, you just, what, you, you, <laughs> I agree with the, like a reasonable, you're, you're I agree afraid. with the, I agree. You're afraid. You're terrified. I'm chilled. Because it's going to, <laughs> I agree that there, there is a, we're at a weird time where we don't totally get what's appropriate and what's not. So the John Lasseter thing from all accounts is him getting a little drunk at parties and like hugging people a little longer than they wanted and he's John Lasseter so he's the head of Pixar he's the head of Disney he if John Lasseter is hugging you longer than you want to be hugged then you know that's like you kind of have to take it yeah but but what like, what do you do about that? Nothing, Does he have nothing. to take a leave See, this of is absence? The thing. I do not yeah. want a world where you just John Lasseter can't, can't hug you for yeah, kind of. Time. I wouldn't mind being hugged by him, but well, I haven't seen him. But the th- do we really want to be, have this kind of sexual policing? You know, we want to rid the workplace of the creeps, but we don't want sort of micro policing of every interaction and every guy worried about complimenting someone or. You know, Every guy worried about complimenting someone? Yeah, they're worried. This has come up. Like, oh, you look good in that uh, miniskirt or something? Oh, yeah, okay, we'll talk about Leon Weaseltier. Oh, uh, okay, oh, no. wow, let's talk wow. about Leon Weaseltier. This is a brilliant guy, the most amusing person in the world, and he has now been become a non-person, and he can't work. What does he that mean that he's – like you keep saying that. Like, oh, I don't oh, even know what that means. What does it mean to become a non-person? He cannot earn money. He has been fired from his job. Leon Weaseltier was accused of harassment and he was uh, probably an office pest. 
that, you know, but he was no Weinstein. He was no, you know, Kevin Spacey. There was nothing like that. He was just inappropriate occasionally, most of it in the 80s and 90s. And now 11 people have come forward and how uncomfortable they were. And I do think that he should be read the riot act and told this will not, you know, we won't tolerate it because that's what I'm saying. We are going to move to a new level and these things aren't, you know, people are going to know they shouldn't do it. But isn't this part of the process of moving to the new level? Like, don't some people have to go down? Don't some people have to, you know, like that, like, isn't this maybe just the thing that needs to happen? And maybe it's a little over the top, but we, and I have nothing bad to say about him. He spoke at my dad's funeral, so. And he's a great guy, and he didn't I, deserve I what happened, but okay. Okay, fine, but devil's advocate, like, that's kind of the thing that needs to happen so that people don't know that they can't do that so stuff that, anymore. So you believe in, so you would justify, for example, the death penalty? Because it's a deterrent, even if you might be over. <laughs> I really don't think that's what I. No, I'm just that follows from no, what I'm no, saying. No, you're saying let's make an example. That's exactly that's the structure of the argument. You say that they, you know, may not quite deserve it, but it's a great deterrent. So let's do it. No, it is. Um, no, uh, 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 what? The death penalty isn't a, a deterrent. Well, that's an empirical question. How right. do you know? How do you know that it, 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 destroying Leon Weaseltier is a deterrent? You don't. Well, we don't. But like, I think like people are freaked out. Like I'm glad that I haven't sexually harassed anybody because I'd be freaked out right now. All right. Based so on can every, we talk all the all the stuff that's do, happening. Do do. Uh, My brother was implicated. How? <laughs> Remember the van? Yeah. Okay. He was never in the van. But a, a parent called me up and said, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> David, to, you want to be here for this? David, it will bring in the brother. <laughs> About you in the van in 19, I don't know, you were in seventh grade. <laughs> no, my son, I got a call. He was, how old were you when you were accused of being in the van? I was never in that van. But how old were you? Close, close, close. I was uh, 15. Oh, he's 15. I get a call from an irate parent. Your son was in a van with my daughter, and he, when I came to the van, he ran away, and she was scantily clothed, and this is a scandal, and you, I just want you to know your son, and, and, you know, and I have the sweetest son in the world, and I couldn't believe it, but then, you know, you think, well, maybe, maybe he's like a little more complicated than I thought, and I said, David, what did you do with that van? And he said, what did you say? I said I wish it was true. This is pre-sex panic. Pre-sex panic. But no, you can just we, imagine you did, how bad it would be. You right did now. not wish it was true. But anyway, point is, they then they're, <laughs> they decide they're going to come over and confront David. And then I talked to David, and he says, okay, have him come over. Mom, it's a total lie. It never happened. They're about to come over. And you didn't believe him. I kind of didn't. You be- didn't believe the victim. Who is the victim? David. Oh. <laughs> well, I didn't know. <laughs> I said, okay, what I did, I said, okay, come over. And I'm thinking, actually, I, I thought it was kind of fascinating. But then they call up, and the father, mortified, says, I am so sorry. It was another boy, and she just named your son randomly. I'm humiliated. I'm sorry. Goodbye. And then David was so mad at me for doubting him. I didn't really doubt you, but who knew, right? But let's just suppose 
was I supposed to believe this? And suppose then I thought later, if it were you know, let's let's fast forward to the nineties. Suppose she said he attacked her. Well, no, this was. This was in the 90s. This was in the 90s. Oh, so you okay. would just have to press pause. <laughs> Let's press pause. All right, don't, uh, look, at my age, I'm not accountable for dates. But let's move on. Are we in a sex panic? No. It, are we threatened with one? Yes. And there are a lot of people that are going to hijack this to implicate all men. And I think that's not helpful because I, I, I saw a study that a high percentage of men, like 78%, a poll, not a study, but just a poll. At w, it was an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that said 78% of men are now ready to speak out if they see mistreatment of women in the workplace, and a high percentage of women are ready. Good, right? And that is good. Yeah. So let's not squander it. That's all. Let's not squander it yeah. with weird agendas. That's my point. Do we agree? I agree with that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. This is Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Tamler. Happy Thanksgiving. Okay, we'll be right back. Dave will be back on the podcast, and we'll talk about fragmented values. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Thanks once again to everybody who has continued to offer us support. Uh, I know if you've binge listened to us, um, as some of you say that you have, you, you've heard this segment so many times. Um, and, and we do repeat ourselves, but I think it's worth repeating how much we appreciate um, not only all the emails and comments you guys send us, um, but just in general, the interactions that you guys have with each other in public. And I don't know, it's a source of real value for us. Um, it's, it's one thing to know people are listening, but it's another thing to actually be able to hear what you guys think. Um, yeah, see you, what you say. And we don't get a chance to reply or engage as much as we would like but it's fascinating to see what you guys are doing on facebook and on reddit now yeah 
Yeah, it is. It's a weird <clears throat> sort of pleasure to see people discussing with each other or arguing with each other in a way that we could just sort of kick back and watch the argument <laughs> take place. Jerk off. So, exactly. But by ourselves. <laughs> but, by but ourselves. By our, solo. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you do want to get uh, in touch with us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. Um, you can tweet to us at Tamler, at Peas, at Very Bad Wizards. Again, we read all those emails. You can leave comments on the Facebook page and engage in discussion there. You can go to our subreddit um, on reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards. You can leave comments on our Patreon page, um, which takes us to other ways in which you can support us. You can, uh, we would be very appreciative and we are very appreciative of all those people who have uh, taken some chunk of their own well-earned or illegally earned income and decided to give us a little bit of that. You can do that if you go to verybadwizards.com slash support, you'll find a link there or just to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can also just click on our Amazon link on that support page or donate directly to us uh, via PayPal. Buy t-shirts, mugs, stickers. Uh, buy t-shirts, mugs, and stickers. It is, it's, getting, it's getting to be time for to us do a to, new design. To, do, to do a new design. Yeah. Um, do I need to like pretend to <laughs> do one first? And then you'll come in. I was going to say no. I learned my lesson, but but you might you might actually. Um, it probably isn't that substantively different. So yeah, thank you. You can follow our very bad wizards on Instagram. Um, yeah, I think there's there there are in fact so many ways of getting hold of us that it's more it's more just a matter of of deciding which medium you like the best. All right. So today, another Thomas Nagel. Dipping back yet again into the Thomas Nagel mortal questions well. This one is actually, as far as I could tell, much harder to find online. It's called The Fragmentation of Value. You may just have to, uh, if you want to read this before, you may just have to buy the book. You can get it on Amazon. Yeah, um, and I'll put a link to, to that. The Kindle edition is only 10 bucks. It's um, so worth it. And it's super worth it, yeah. Dave, over the break, was asking me, maybe given that we've done now three Nagel episodes in a row, could say something about Nagel and how he's viewed within the philosophy world. He's a really interesting figure, I think. Late 60s, early 70s, he is an up-and-coming and and, uh, very accomplished philosopher already. This is when he's writing a lot of the essays that we're reading in um, Mortal Questions. And, you know, a wonderfully clear writer. His big book, The View from Nowhere, was developing uh, what seemed like some sort of account of human experience that involves this clash between the internal perspective, the perspective of from our subjective experience, and our ability to take uh, a view from outside ourselves, from the point of view of the universe, as he says, or under the aspect of eternity, and it's uh, or or the view from nowhere, and often not be able to reconcile those two perspectives, that thread runs through a lot of his essays and through his book, The View from Nowhere. 
I was talking to somebody about Nagel back in grad school, and they were saying that people were really hyped up from the view from nowhere after all of these essays. And although I think it's a very good book, I don't think it gave them anything more than what they had already got from Nagel. You know, it, right. it, it wasn't right. uh, a, as unifying an approach as people were hoping. But of course, people Sorry. probably over, <laughs> they over expect the, right. that some sort of unified systematic account. And that was something that Nagel, to his credit, resisted um, throughout his career. And although he that may detract from his reputation in some philosopher's eyes, it just adds to his reputation in my eyes. So I like him. I, his, unfortunately, now the latest thing that people know him for is a book which I haven't read, so I'm not going to say anything about it, but it, he he seems to suggest that uh, Darwinism is an insufficient explanation for human existence or human consciousness or something like that. And so now many, especially younger people, associate him as some sort of anti-Darwinian. And uh, I'm just not going to speak on that because I just don't, I don't know enough about that whole controversy. Right. I, I, and I have not read that book, that book either. I, I should say I read his even earlier book called The Possibility of Altruism when I was in graduate school. There's probably a whole other episode to be had about this because it relates to th- this revenge topic um, that we were that we teased that we we might get to. Um, but this view in in psychology that everything is motivated by by simple hedonism it's it's often an implicit assumption and and very often an explicit assumption and the the studies on altruism within social psychology often assume this and i thought this would be a good thing to tackle it was in my recollection very complex and sort of dry i liked it but i don't think it's for everybody and and i think that there is something really to be said especially given what you said about the v from nowhere in the ability to communicate ideas in these this length of a chapter yeah. Like uh sometimes it really is the fucking case that you can say in eight pages yeah. sufficient. You can say you know And part no of reason. that is like not feeling the need like illuminating a problem or an aspect of human experience without feeling the need to solve it. it and, yes. and he really just points to the problem and then if he doesn't see a way out of it, just leaves it there. That's right. okay. Yeah. It's totally okay, and the name of the collection of essays is Mortal Questions, Not Mortal Answers. So I feel I think it's totally fair. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, um, all right, so let's talk about this essay. It's called The Fragmentation of Value. It kind of launches in a discussion of what he calls practical conflicts where we have to decide what to do. There's a certain subset of these conflicts where we have competing values and no way, no decision procedure that can adjudicate. Um, And these are what he calls genuine dilemmas, where there is decisive support for two or, or more incompatible courses of action or inaction. 
all things being equal, there would be decisive support for each of those courses of action. And that's the problem is that you can't do both of those actions. They're incompatible. Right. Or, and so he wants to figure out, well, what? It, this is a problem that we sometimes have, these dilemmas. Why do we have it? And he traces the the answer to that question. He says, well, it's because there are five fundamental sources of value that are he doesn't actually use the word i don't think incommensurable i think that word came later um but that's really what the what he's talking about here so these five fundamental sources of value are incommensurable they can't be compared or reduced into each other the first is when we have specific obligations to people, um, an obligation to keep a promise to somebody that you made, an obligation to take care of your your children, an obligation to um, to your employer to do a good job, these are personal obligations that that you have. Um, the second right. category is is general rights, individual human rights that ought to be respected, right? Right. Even uh, if you have no particular relation to somebody. Yeah. Um, the the third source of value is utility to uh, minimize people's suffering and make people as as happy as possible. The fourth is what he calls perfectionist values. These are the values of things. He, he says the intrinsic value of certain achievements or creations apart from their value to individuals who experience or use them. So the examples he talks about, just scientific discoveries, are have an intrinsic kind of value that is over and above the value they have to people, um, just the value of, say, learning about um, a certain species of animal or something like that, or learning about space exploration. Um, right. Or the value e- of e- artistic creations or, you know, the value of Mozart's piano concerto number 25. Right. Um, that these are – these things have intrinsic value that can't be reduced to any of the other sources of value. Right. So, so this is often uh, – I think everybody – knows this source of value but it frustrates me sometimes to have to to when when people say well why you know why are we exploring mars like what what is what possible benefit will it have to humans and they get very mad when i say maybe none maybe zero or like what's the value of studying this particular species of poisonous tree frog and the way in in which they evolved to have this you know it, and and you know there's just i think humans do just have this sense that like hey knowing stuff is cool let's let's uh some nerd wants to develop a consistent system of you know non-euclidean geometry and and probably won't ever help anybody and so utilitarians will try to take this source of value and and try to explain it in terms of utility but they will never capture all of it or at least according to Nagel and I think we both right. agree with that um, I think aesthetic values are maybe the that, that certain works of art can have value over and above the the pleasure that they that they bring to people but maybe even I don't know like it's it's not that the 
none of these things are open to dispute, but athletic accomplishments, you right. know. And then finally, um, personal projects. Um, and these are just projects that we undertake that give meaning to our lives. This is something, and I don't think we've talked about this in, with Bernard Williams and his critique of utilitarianism, but you know, we devote our lives to certain projects. They're not necessarily projects that have uh, intrinsic value to others, but they have value to us because of our connection to them. Right. Mm -hmm. So he, he says maybe translating Aristotle's metaphysics or mastering. He, he has these uh, he's writing in New York. This is the 70s. So he has to drop a bunch of intellectual <laughs> references. Mastering the well-tempered clavier uh, by Bach. Right. These are things that are that just something that you're connected with give meaning to your particular life right um, and, and again it may be up for dispute whether or not there is utilitarian value and whether it collapses to that but i think that on the face of it um there that there are plenty of examples in which at the very least the person doing it has no such motivation and it reminds me i, th I think i might have made i mentioned this in one of our patreon picks um it made me think of this uh, documentary called Finding Vivian Meyer. Have you seen that? No. Um, about a photographer. It's, it's a great. It's a great documentary. But it's basically a, a woman who was who spent her life. She was a, an immigrant from Germany, and she basically spent her life being uh, a nanny, a caretaker uh, for various families. But it turns out that she did street photography, and she was. Every time she went out, she carried this camera around with her, took a gajillion pictures, about 100,000 of them, never showing them to anybody. She died and her collection was, uh, was discovered by um, some people who knew her. And when they started developing those pictures, there were these amazing pictures. And she very, very clearly... Um, in her whatever personal writings um, and and communications didn't have the intention of ever showing them to anybody. She just got some intrinsic pleasure out of them, right? This was this was not even an aesthetic endeavor in the sense right. that she didn't care that other people saw it. Um, and it's but her life is such a clear example of this kind of commitment. And you know, this is Williams's point, but. You know, obviously these things have utility in that the people find fulfillment in committing to these projects. Right. But there's no way they maximize utility. Right. So exactly. this woman could have spent a lot of that time, you know, either making a lot of money and donating to effective altruistic causes, you know. Right. Or, you know, so there, there were definitely ways if she wanted to contribute to the net welfare of the world there are definitely other paths but but this is a source of value that provides her with genuine genuine reasons to to do to do these things so these are the five sources fundamental i mean he i, I don't know how committed he is to the view that there's only these five but he does say that this is pretty i mean can you think of another fundamental source of value no, 
I mean, no, I, I, didn't even try, I didn't even try. If he had made the claim that they're five and only five, and this is the the most critical part of my of my uh, thesis, then I probably would have tried to argue in my head against him. But he doesn't. He's just trying. You know, this captures a wide swath of human uh, values, and the point really that he's making is. What do we do given that these cause conflicts when, whenever we're faced with certain decisions? I, w- I wonder if another source, given where I come from, might be honor that provides a whole different set of, of reasons to act that are separate from these. Yeah, and he, you know, it, it, in that line, I did have the thought that he doesn't talk about sort of character development. I mean, there is... yeah. A, there is a, a a nod to Aristotelian wisdom, but it's not in it's not in the context of saying that this might be a separate value. But so I think that might be one that that yeah. that is separate from a project or an undertaking to to become a better person. But again, the point is really that let's just start with this list and see what yeah. happens. Right? Okay. So what do we do about this situation where? Um, sometimes we are faced with conflicts where uh, more than one of these sources are in play. I mean, I think this is often true, and um, and there's no simple decision procedure to decide between them. Um, so one possibility he considers is, well, uh, he thinks. Like this is the the rough order he thinks that they go in. If you were writing a BuzzFeed article, like this would be the top. This would be his ranking: top five sources of human value. (laughs) Obligation. Oh yeah. So don't uh, infringe on people's rights is number one. Maximize utility is is in position two. Satisfy your personal obligations is three. Is that right? I think it's the the other way around. Undertake obligations after maximize utility. Uh, one where he says one might try to order them. For example, never infringe general rights and undertake only those special obligations that cannot lead to the infringement of anyone's okay. rights. Oh yeah, you're right. Maximize utility with the range of action left by the constraints of rights and obligations. Yeah. No, you're right. Obligations yeah. comes second, and then utility yeah. um, comes third. And, and but he says. Even if you ordered them, and even if that's the right order, it's it, it wouldn't be true that considerations of utility could never outweigh um, right. a violation of human rights, or that even perfectionist values could never outweigh utility or um, specific obligations. How, like, if you're so committed to this project, if you are so committed to taking those pictures, or um, you know, look, climbing Mount Everest or something, then and and this is and this gives you so much meaning that that's going to trump utilitarian or um, or even your specific obligations that you might have. Right, and I feel like it, I don't know if this is the point at which to talk about this, but it was. I think it's important to understand that again. He's he's not making at this point. He's not even making normative statements about whether or not these values are the correct ones. He's more sort of saying when you look at the values that people seem to endorse, 
yeah. these seem to be the ones. And so it's not as if he's saying, for instance, you could easily get caught up in a discussion of whether or not it's, it's even coherent to say that rights exist or something like that. And, and, and he's not trying to defend these in any normative or meta-ethical way. He's saying just he's just saying that these are the sources of value that people seem to bring to bear on a lot of practical and and sometimes moral questions and and so i i don't want it to be taken that he is hand wavily uh endorsing some sort of normative view or or metaethical view that justifies these because he hasn't done any of that work you know you could think of it as a personal thing although he thinks these are, I think, a lot more objective and universal than that. But these are the sources of value that influence my moral decision making. Right. Uh, and, and, and they're all separate from self-interest, which provides a whole other set of reasons right. to act. But, but he's talking about the sources of value, sources of moral value here. Um, there's another little complication, and then we can get to sort of his – his way of approaching the problem of these practical conflicts. But each of these, or at least, you know, say, take something like infringing rights, there's two ways we can regard them from an agent-centered way or from a under-the-aspect-of-eternity way. So he says that, you know, it's definitely true that it's, it's a good thing that rights shouldn't be violated, but it's also really important for the agent, for the person, if not to violate other people's rights. And and so this is why, you know, if you are in a position where you can violate the the rights of a criminal, the civil rights or the civil liberties of a criminal, and you think doing that will prevent even greater violations of rights down the road, you still shouldn't do that. We have this feeling that it's really important that it that we don't violate the rights. So we're not just trying to mi- minimize the number of rights violations. Right. We are actually like it's it's very important to us morally speaking to not be connected personally to one of those rights violations. Right, it's a true personal constraint. Um at least that's how people think of it. And I you know this is again a theme I think in in all of the essays we've read is to elucidate the source of tension. Um, and this, I think, is what he's pointing to as the heart of the of of the tension among some of these dilemmas that we face, which is that we are often forced in very good ways to take two views, neither of which is really wrong, um, both of which we can take because of this particular human capacity, especially that objective view. You know, that's something that just happens to emerge because we have, you know, big calculators sitting in our heads. And our ability to do that introduces a new source of value and possibly a new sense of moral commitment that is, you know, there is there is no law in psychology or in whatever in the universe that says that... that that we would have developed cons- Quite. Cons- consistent uh, uh, sources of value. He's, he's disagreeing. <laughs> Omar is. <laughs> uh, so what do we do about this when we find ourselves? Uh, do you have a good example of the of uh, one of these practical conflicts? I mean, 
the obligation that we have to um, to our children is a strong one. Um, we have a particular personal obligation to our children that may very well conflict with the other, again, subjective or personal um, uh, aims to fulfill your life's work. And sometimes those really can clash. And, you know, I, I think that there are plenty of examples of people making a decision one way or the other where they sort of, they, with limited resources, they sacrifice themselves in order to fulfill their obligations to the best of their ability to their children or their relatives. And in some cases, uh, choose to pursue their perfectionist ends. And right, right. Like right now when like, our, both of our children are like not had breakfast yet <laughs> exactly. and, and we're recording this podcast, <laughs> which is definitely a perfectionist va- uh, value. That's right. It's like overflowing with intrinsic value. (laughs) And then there's the obvious ones of utilitarian concerns, um, which, which again, I think that because we have calculating brains and the ability to take the perspective and even effect change on a large scale, any leader is going to be uh, you know, who has been in a position long enough is going to be faced with a decision which might uh, entail having to sacrifice somebody's ability to either, you know, like pursue their own perfectionist ends or maybe even their rights because it's so obviously the case that overall utility is something that that as a leader you have to value when you're in charge of lots of people. You know, the children is a great example also because they come into such obvious conflict with utilitarian. I mean, this is the (laughs) things that we do for our children and is clearly that money could be better spent if if your goal is to maximize utility. And so – Here's the question, like, so, you know, when you're trying to decide what to devote your attention to, you know, you have specific obligations to your children, you have personal projects, you have perfectionist values, you have utility, and all these things don't reduce to each other, they can't, um, there's no obvious way of ordering them, so Nagel says... um, what does this what does this mean, right? I mean, does this mean that all of these decisions are arbitrary ultimately right. since we can't find some sort of systematic ordered way of approaching these problems or is there some kind of way of uh of of coming to a judgment that is more or less correct without having this systematic decision procedure and he he goes with the latter alternative, but he says he admits he says uh, the alternative is is hard to exp- it's hard to explain. And this- that's the that's the 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 most unsatisfying part of this essay for me, it, and I think we'll talk about it more. Is he kind of tries to point to a way in which we resolve this, um, but it's so underspecified that it just left me. It left me wanting more of an explanation because in the other essays, he's just sort of left it at that. He's just sort of left it at the conflict. And again, we're setting aside the obvious fact that people have tried to come up with with unification theories. Um, 
But if there were a unifying theory in which you could collapse all of these sources of value and it had been outlined, I think that it would be you you would get a lot more consensus, right? And ethics is, if anything, a field that is confusingly wrought with disagreement. Look, you could just take that disagreement and and not just disagreement about content, like is abortion right or wrong, disagreement about the way in which you ought to use these values as a as a set of decision rules. Like, do you rank them? Do you weight them? Whatever. Two dangers can be avoided um, if you just accept that that there is there will never be a unifying theory and one is the danger of romantic defeatism which abandons rational theory because it inevitably leaves many problems unsolved and i i feel like that's an easy it's an easy and tempting thing to say which is there's no moral truth it's all subjective it's all subjective and and i like the, is, the way it's labeled romantic defeatism. romantic defeatism because it is kind of the thing that you st- when you're young, you're sort of attracted to. Yeah, there's no exactly. moral truth. There's no. You're a nihilist. Right. Exactly. You think we are kidding? Attacking with the funny stuff? Yeah. You think you haven't dreamed of Lebowski? Yeah. We believe in nothing. We believe in nothing, Lebowski. Nothing. And tomorrow we come back and we cut off your Johnson. Not like a Lebowski nihilist. You're like a meta-ethical nihilist, and you think part of the reason there's it's an, there's an attraction to this view is because the people who have tried to defend objectivity about values they seem unsuccessful and question begging and so yeah now you feel like a hero because you're staring the hard truth directly (laughs) you're staring at the void and not flinching not blinking right there is there is a discussion to be had about our the the human mind's need for elegance that has gotten us to, has gotten us very far in terms of, say, mathematical discovery. Like there yeah. is, there is this sense that that, um, and he Nagel uses as an analogy, for instance, the laws of physics. Right? There is definitely, it definitely bothers people that there are various forces at work in the universe that don't seem to collapse to one. Right. And yeah. so the, the the attempt to find a grand unified theory, for instance, that can unify gravity, gravitation and quantum um, physics is is, you know, like the most pressing problem for for many physicists. And when you think about it, it's only motivated by this deep intuition that there ought to be only one. Right. Like they want to go back to Newton and where it was just one theory. Right. And then now you get to this point where there's a fragmentation of physics, I guess you could right. call it, and that that bothers people. Uh, I want to the other danger. I want to read what he says word for word. The other danger, if you're not going to be a romantic defeatist, is the danger of exclusionary over rationalization, which bars as ir- irrelevant or empty all considerations that cannot be brought within the scope of a general system admitting explicitly defensive conclusions. This yields skewed results by counting only measurable or otherwise precisely describable factors, even when others are in fact relevant. I like I love that. I want to tattoo that on my dick. <laughs> you would you would have to convert it to to some far more efficient no. language. <laughs> 
don't think so. I think it can fit. It can all fit. I I think this is a danger that people and for the, actually the same reason this need for elegance yeah. that people have jumped like full into in both ethics and I think psychology is all right so there's certain things that just aren't measurable so we'll just exclude them from our calculations and we'll end up we'll end up with a very skewed but but easily incorporated into our system result i think this is ends up distorting ethics rather than illuminating it because as he says it exp- it excludes as relevant things that are in fact relevant um just because we can't we can't figure out how to measure them or incorporate them in our unified theory right and so i you know i want to be i want to be fair to at least the people whose task this is where i it so you know the utilitarian is the most obvious case of this who says look you're wrong these actually all do boil down to utility and the maximizing of utility in at least in the, in a normative sense um you if you have perfectionist values that uh, bring you satisfaction you do have to just plug that into a cost benefit analysis and the elegance of utilitarianism is its appeal and i think that um that you could as a utilitarian read this and say nagel is just question begging he is explicitly stating that there are these five sources of value and um, telling me that I'm wrong when I do what we often refer to as bite, biting the bullet. When I say, well, I know that you have the intuition that your perfectionist ends or your personal obligations override uh, overall utility, but you're wrong. And that's kind of why I started off by saying that Nagel, I don't think, needs to make the normative claims that these truly are all sources of value. I think what he's trying to say is that for the lay person or even for whatever the philosopher who is making these decisions these messy ethical decisions in their everyday lives these in fact are sources of value that enter into the equation and that it is a sort of dishonesty to brush them aside as not important or to uh, stretch them to fit your unified theory because that, in fact, is unsatisfying, even, I think, you, Nagel doesn't say this, but even to you. Even by your own lights. Yeah. Even Absol- by, yeah. Absolutely. I think this generalizes this exclusionary over-rationalization. I think this is the reason why you have these sim- simple-minded, hedonistic views in psychology, right? Because those yes. are the things that are more easily measurable. Absolutely. Than like, you know, personal fulfillment um, over time or something like that. That's less easily measurable than just like clicking a button. Like, how are you happy at this second or not? I mean, we've talked about that in that. I think in the moral responsibility debate, you know, people, if it doesn't fit a theory, they will exclude it even when... No, that person does seem blameworthy and it just can't capture it like with with one theory. It just doesn't it doesn't work. But that doesn't mean that we don't feel it and that you don't feel it when you're not when you're taking off your theorizing hat and you're just interacting with the world. Right. And that's why I actually appreciate more the say utilitarian who bites the bullet, because at 
at least what they're saying is that in order to have my unified normative theory of ethics, I am forced to discard in a way that is even uncomfortable for me. I am forced to discard uh, these things, and I'm doing so for the sake of elegance in my in my ethical theory. And well, why do you appreciate that? Because it's better, I think, than the utilitarian who merely tries to redescribe these oh, other sources of pain and, and and keep those sources of value by sneaking them back in in a way that I think then actually makes the theory a utilitarian theory um, uh, sort of meaningless. That is, if you just if all you did was say no, all of these sources of value mean maximizing utility, and you do the cost benefit analysis, you would be missing the incommensurability aspect that really even pulls you to have a dilemma and that's why somebody like peter singer who says no fuck it like i know my like i'm caring for my mom in this expensive place right like i know that this is a clash of my own values and just because i fully endorse utilitarianism i am going to admit that i am uh, i am right. wrong in doing this unlike and the I utilitarian he says but actually in the Caring for parents is is a utilitarian good or something like that. Exactly. And yes, exactly. there is something f fundamentally dishonest about that in the way that Singer is just saying, I'm doing something wrong. I mean, right. I still don't think that – I, I agree that I, that is a preferable form of utilitarianism. I still think it's missing many important aspects of morality, but yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, and and I think as long as as long as you you stick to your guns, because that is in fact what the theory of utilitarianism, as as, as for instance Singer defends it, it makes very very specific. It generates it it gives you a decision uh, process that generates very clear answers, and when you start twisting things around in order to satisfy your intuition about these other sources of value by merely describing them with the language of utilitarianism, you have both engaged in, I think, a dishonest endeavor and you have tarnished the elegance of the theory of utilitarianism that makes it attractive in the first place. Okay, so what do we do if we're not going to be romantic defeatists or exclusionary over-rationalizers? What he says is that is needed is some sort of mixed strategy where you systematize what you can systematize and then you still recognize and allow to affect the decision what can't be systematized. I, th I guess the idea is you utilitarianism can provide I, – I, you know, there are problems. There are practical problems with trying to determine what the most utilitarian outcome would be. But to the extent that you can do that, you do that. And you also try to figure out like what will, you know, what will the, the violation of rights be here if there has to be one. And then but then you also don't deny the relevance of these other sources of value and the fact that you have systematized what you can informs the decision like if like that actually helps you make the decision even though it doesn't give you a clear answer it it is informative it's evidence 
uh, for something, and it is part of wise deliberation. I mean, the thing that he thinks is necessary to make correct judgments in these cases is practical wisdom, for what Aristotle uh, called practical wisdom or phrenesis. And to have that, you need to have all the facts that your systematic approaches will will give you. You need to refine those to the extent that they can be refined and then weigh that against some of these other less uh, definable sources of value. So I'm also going to read a little quote um, verbatim. He says, The lack of a general theory leads too easily to a false dichotomy. Either fall back entirely on the unsystematic intuitive judgment of whoever has to make a decision or else cook up a unified but artificial system like cost-benefit analysis, which will grind out decisions on any problem presented to it. So, so, and, and he obviously thinks that these are not satisfying ways to do it. And I think that the key point that he's making is something that I actually don't know uh, whether this is an accepted view of ethics or whether this is something that Nagel is saying that might be controversial, what he's saying that I think might be controversial, and I'm not sure in the community of people who study ethics, is that elucidating these values isn't actually a decision-generating procedure. That is, what ethics is doing here is not giving you a method to arrive at the answer. And I don't know if uh, that makes sense to me, right? He's saying everything that you just said, for instance, that when you're faced with complex decisions in everyday life, the value of ethics is to be able to identify all of the sources of value that might be relevant for the decision, but accept that those aren't going to yield the decision. That it's not an algorithm. All it is is a, 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 um, the beginning of the recipe to make a good decision. But there are better and worse. And there are better and worse, yeah. And I'll get to that in a second. But I, but I do think that it is that it is contrary to what many people think that ethics is doing, right? right? Yielding like a determinate answer. Exactly. Like yeah. whether it is the procedure of uh, Kant's categorical imperative, or or the veil of ignorance, or the maximizing function of of utility, those are taken to be they generate the answer and Nagel is saying no that's just not the way that we that we should think about this what we need really is just to clarify all of the values that are going into any given decision and then that's when he goes to the practical wisdom part which I think we really need to talk about because I don't know you could tell me here's more can I I give an analogy yeah so Um, you have this debate in sports of the analytics movement and the sort of coaches who go with their gut, right? Right. I think the sort of... So there are some teams that just rely on analytics to determine all their draft picks, whether they trade. The Cleveland Browns are doing like what to trade for, who to trade for based on, you know, what their system, their their algorithms yield. And then there are other people who rely on sort of the intuitions of the scouts and how well people 
might fit within a team. Um, these are all things that you can't – there's no algorithm for. Like is this person a team player? Are they right. a good locker room presence? You know, are are they going to be a hard worker in practice and inspire the other players to to do the same? And so the best teams, I think, do an element of both. They have all the analytics, so but then they'll also have head coaches and general managers with good judgment who can see that even though the analytics might say that this person is 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 valuable you don't think that they would be a good fit with the team with the various personalities that you have on the team this person's not going to fit with the team and the team culture Um, and this is something that an algorithm and the analytics people could never determine and so but the it's not that the analytics aren't valuable it's that you also need coaches and general manager with the judgment that can make and and incorporate all these non-tangible factors into account right and uh, i agree with everything you said except for maybe the need to even call them non-tangible like it it just could be that it is a that what the what those trained scouts and coaches are doing is finding other sources that while they cannot be measured quantitatively are nonetheless sources of value that can be elucidated and listed as input into a decision right right? so um and that's not it is not just i mean there could be people who do this but but in the example as you presented it that is not just going with your gut. That is saying, I think that the system, this Moneyball system that we've developed, um, has not taken into account and cannot take into account, for instance, but maybe he doesn't like living in Philadelphia. Uh, maybe, maybe, right. uh, maybe there are other people on this team that he would not get along with maybe he can't maybe, handle the media attention and exactly like there are all the those negative. things and and so so that is so that judgment maybe and Nagel only devotes like a, a very little bit in this essay to say that practical wisdom that judgment is is the thing that people use when they take into account all of these sources of value um, it is the thing that they use to generate decisions, but it's un, it's completely underspecified what that might be, right? Yeah, completely. And maybe it's because it can't be specified. I actually think the analytics is a great analogy, except for one thing: mm-hmm. um, there is a way to measure exactly. the wisdom was, of a coach. I was about to say and, exact same thing by They're, the wins or losses <laughs> of the team, and we lack that with ethics, uh, right? Like so that, there's that, a practical wisdom that we can't totally define, maybe in a head coach. But we can uh, judge them by their results and with ethics, yeah, it's just harder to know with people like how you judge them as having good practical wisdom. And there will be people who disagree with you and given everything you said, they might disagree with that decision on what would be valid grounds. They might say like, no, you underweighted uh, the overall utility or you underweighted the importance right. of whatever. And so it's, it's hard to know. So, so, so because we don't have a clear normative standard by which to judge practical, like decisions made through this practical wisdom, 
Um, it doesn't again mean that there there aren't like there are wise people, right? And and when we say there are wise people, we don't just mean there are people who agree with the way that we would make a judgment, right? We mean to say that well, they seem to have been able to take a very complicated ethical or perhaps practical problem and at least make a reasonable decision give and and justify it given the information that they have even if we know that it is not a perfect one right it, yeah. it, it, you need you need not have universal agreement to say that some people make better judgments than others um there's another analogy that he uses that, that I referred to earlier, which is that of physical principles um, and the laws of physics. And so, you know, in physics, you have the law of gravity, you have uh, electromagnetic force, you have the strong and weak nuclear force. There is a problem there that he takes to be analogous and that you have, there is no clear unification for those either. And sometimes you would do best when you're solving a problem to, to, to work with the equations that have to do with gravity. And sometimes you have to use the ones about that have to do with quantum effects. And then sometimes the electromagnetic and strong, strong and weak nuclear force. There's a difference in that analogy as well, which is if you're doing physics, the, the thing that you're trying to figure out, if what you want to figure out usually is like the motion of planets, it's pretty clear which one of those you would use, right? Like that is, it would be pretty useless to, except for in really, really specific circumstances, to think that you needed to know everything about quantum physics um, in order to calculate the orbits of planets. No, all you really need to do is have an understanding of gravity there. So, your the problem sets in physics are a bit more constrained in the sense that you know which of those principles those laws are likely to yield the practical answer that you're looking for right. in a way that you don't with ethics where any given decision might in fact be influenced by any of these five or whatever many you think um uh are, are relevant. All of them are relevant for a practical or ethical decision in human judgment in a way that you can get along perfectly fine with just Newtonian physics if what you're trying to do is build a building or something. Yes, right. So that's a problem. Um, and again, this could be, as to quote from Moral Luck last time, a problem with no solution. Um, but he says the thing about... Uh, ethics and these kinds of decisions is they have to be made so mm -hmm. there's no you, uh, you you can't just not make them not making them is a decision of its own so what do you how, how do you approach it and and some and, and often we have to make these decisions with other people it's not just on us what to do and he says well what you need for it to be a constructive process, again, not one that will yield a determinate answer, but a constructive process is at the very least consensus of a certain kind, a consensus of what kinds of reasons should affect the decision and what kinds of reasons are excluded. Essentially, what are the sources of value that are relevant to the decision and what will 
ultimately make the decision, I think, un- or the debate unconstructive is if some people are incorporating sources of value that other people think are completely irrelevant, and then you're really right. going to be talking past each other. But if you can agree at least, and this is an interesting idea, I think, if you can agree at least on what the considerations uh, that we should be taking into account are, then you're on the path to make better judgments. You know, you often you often do hear people say, I don't agree, like, I don't agree with the decision that the judge made or that the coach made, but I understand why they made that right. decision. And that is a very different response than, um, right? So, so say a decision goes against you in two cases. In one case, the judge was seemed capricious. In another case, the judge very clearly elucidated his own dilemma in making this decision and the principles that he thought were important and said, you know, this is just simply one of of how to weigh these competing values. And this is what I arrived at. Sometimes you just use examples from other parts of life or moral lessons from history or the, you know, the wisdom of other people who have made similar decisions before you. And it is perfectly fine to say there will never be a, a perfect decision to be that, that can be made because th- these often are in conflict. But it is important and I think should be valued that some people do this well such that even when a decision is made against you, you say that was a fair or whatever. Right. You know, that I would have weighed this value more yeah. than you did, but I agree that all of these considerations matter. The only disagreement is I weigh one consideration more than you do that you didn't do that. I mean, we have an ability sometimes even in the moment to really respect that. And right. the, the things that, that, that make us angry is when we think that the considerations that motivated them to make a decision are, shouldn't have motivated them at all, that they're completely irrelevant. Yeah, even if they agree with you, and, and it, it yeah. actually it, it reminds me of uh, this discussion that we've had, and, and it, this might start an argument, but I don't mean it to. But um, when we were talking about the, the senator who, who decided that um, gay marriage was okay or that gay rights was something to be defended because his son had come out as gay, yeah. you and I had a disagreement about whether it mattered my point was that really like the the whole time you had all this information about what it means to be, you know, to have human right. Um, and it took your son coming out for you to finally make that decision. I think that Nagel is giving me a, a, a better language to describe why I'm unsatisfied, why I find that unsatisfying, because I think that Although right, although in although the outcome is something I agreed with that he is now defending, you know, uh, the right of of gay people to get married. I don't like that that in both cases before when he was opposed to it and now when he's pro, he didn't seem to actually make that decision by taking all of these things into account. This um, this is where your Kantianism just we, but there is no moral worth to the action because it didn't come it's not that, from it's not that, following but, the categorical imperative no it, it's not that that's why I, that's why i'm trying to use this language because i took it that you were agreeing that in fact this is that that 
taking into account all of these these sources of value is an important thing for making a wise a yeah. wise judgment and that and i and this gives me a way of not of defending my view without saying that it's that yeah no i understand I, yeah. I i understand what you're saying i under i mean my my beef with that was look that's how we arrive at a lot of our decisions is all of a sudden a certain situation in our lives gives us an empathetic connection to mm -hmm. something that we lacked before. And that's not something to trash the guy over. Um, it's something, yeah, I mean, it, in some sense it would have been better, you know. Uh, if he had come to it in a different way, but I, I, I just think we overestimate the extent to which our own moral decisions—the ones that we that are correct or that are reasonable—you know—that often ha are often are born out of something like that. Like you become an animal welfare activist because you saw a video and it was horrifying, and it horrified you, not because you realized that it was wrong to cause suffering to sentient creatures or something like that 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 kind of stuff happens all the time and and then i just it just seemed a very kind of you know the performative uh <laughs> a condemnation moral condemnation of this guy who has come around to a view that you you yourself agree with and these people it, it, should be call, encouraged to do call it, calling it performative is 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 <laughs> Doing my view a disservice. I agree. So uh, I'll you were you were you were not performing. You were not I'll, virtue signaling. You weren't moral <laughs> grandstanding. I'm, and and I and I think that there's a way in which we don't disagree because I think that I agree with you that the starting point for moral change or for sort of incorporating a new source of value into your decisions might very well be that that moment. Right. And so if now the person says, I, um, I value, I realize that I was not taking into account these other sources of value, this emotional moment kicked me into gear. I think that's actually the right, the right descriptive view of what often happens. But I'll give an, another example, um, which just happened yesterday. I think yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday where, uh, Trump, um, decided to, uh, not lift the ban on hunting the elephants in Africa, right? Yeah. And, and, and apparently importing the reason the, the, importing them, yeah. right? So um, the ban on importing like what are tusks or whatever. Um, the reason that he was convinced was that basically people were showing him footage of what they do to these animals and this distressed him so much that he that he said no fuck this this is horrible and so so he he changed his mind and again i think it's it's very analogous except for in this case it's trump where in my leader i would want them to have been the sort of person who would have had all of those sources of potential value uh before making the decision, right? To me, that's wisdom. Wisdom would have been to have cultivated a way in which when you make important decisions, all of those things come to mind. And again, if this is the starting point, I actually didn't right. want to condemn Trump for this because it might be a starting point. And you take what um, you can get with Trump. You take what you can get. <laughs> My fear is that it is 
capricious in a way that you know by by sheer luck somebody showed him some gory footage and and next week he might make a capricious decision based on on utility well i mean and, the only reason that you and i know that what louis ck did is wrong is because we both have daughters right i mean <laughs> like there's no other way we would know that like this, jerking off in front of a woman when she doesn't want that did you see by the way uh, i think you've seen this before but there's that that great satirical article uh, as a father of daughters yeah um yeah <laughs> which is yeah which is essentially making this point which is yeah. um the there is a lot then... of performative condemnation of that <laughs> of people who say as a father of daughters too <laughs> yeah exactly so but the question really that we're left with is what is this wisdom i i think that it's true that some people have this wisdom and this ability to do it. And perhaps we can even identify them and we can say these people are wise and they take this stuff into account. But we're still left with a big question mark about how one would cultivate this and what it means to yeah. uh, to make the more correct decision. Um, and, and this is maybe yeah. if he had been a little more open to character based approaches to ethics which he seems to have almost neglected entirely that and this is actually something that aristotle devotes a lot of attention to in his ethical view and a lot of virtue is this is the thing that you try to develop through habit and practice and exposure to a wide variety of situations and right. um and the, and you develop this um, this practical wisdom, and I do think you need. I think a character based approach is necessary if you're even going to try to answer the question. Because what Nagel leaves us with is have all the facts and then do your best. You know, right, right. And this generated a certain thought in me that I I, I don't know that we should even talk about it, but it is there. The clear difference between teaching ethics and teaching people how to make wise decisions, even if they're wise ethical decisions, it, it, it seems really fundamentally different to me. That, that is, it's not that they're not related, but I've often been puzzled by, um, I don't know if you've ever looked at the tr a traditional uh, business ethics syllabus. Oh, I used to teach. Yeah, okay, so like you, you really you teach these sort of utilitarianism and, and uh, deontology and you, and it's horrific. It, it strikes me as the, the weirdest way to yeah. teach uh, somebody the ability to make a practically ethical decision. Not because you can't, certainly you can say like, okay, how would you, you apply utilitarian principles in this case? And how would, how would you apply deontological principles? But that strikes me as not the way that, uh, would be the most efficient way to teach somebody how to make these wise decisions. And it's not the way that you, <laughs> that would be really respected by anybody if you're in a position of leadership. If you said, no, Kant said, never lie, um, so I'm not going to lie. Like th That's meaningless. And I think one of the reasons that I like this essay, even though he leaves us p perhaps even with a, a less – it's less satisfying to me in that he doesn't say there's no answer 
um, and he doesn't give us an answer. He says, maybe there is this answer and he leaves it underspecified. But I think that the, the value here might be in a starting point for how you would go about using ethics to actually get people to make wise choices. Because what you want is not somebody who will, who, you know, upon coming into a leadership position, know what Bentham and Mill thought you should do and know that what Kant thought you should do is different than that. It is really one of, look, here is the landscape of the kinds of values that humans really seem to to hold. And here are examples in which people properly seem to take into account all of those values. And these are the decisions they generated. And, and examples these are, in our field. like exam- Yeah, yeah. And right, like to, to give real, you know, and I think that's why Nagel points out uh, the law as a case in which this is kind of done, right? So when judges make these decisions, they are a matter of record and you can go back and look at, you know, they often make explicit the things they took into account when making these messy decisions that they they're forced to make, like you say, they have to make these decisions. And that might be one way of, uh, of accruing wisdom by just, by just reading the actual decisions that people made and why they made them and trying to figure out, you know, not ignoring ethical principles, but more like admitting that defending one source of value as the ultimate unified theory is not going to get anybody uh, very far in terms of actually making practical decisions, right? Yeah. Let me just read. I I know we're encouraging everybody to read this because these, again, are short essays, but I do think that that, um, is a very satisfying last. Again, Nagel's a great writer, and he concludes with this quote. But for most of the questions that need deciding, ethical considerations are multiple, complex, often cloudy, and mixed up with many others. They need to be considered in a systematic way, but in most cases, a reasonable decision can be reached only by sound judgment informed as well as possible by the best arguments that any relevant disciplines have to offer. And that statement, I think he's saying, things are messy, but don't don't for a second believe that just because they're messy, we can't do a better job or a worse right. job yeah. of taking them into account. Don't think right. that that just means you flip a coin every time. It's, <laughs> exactly. it's uh, you can come to better or worse decisions, just there's not, you'll never be certain that you were right. right. Uh, so. And there's not a determinate way of going about that. Right. That's great. I agree. So join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. The greatest boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Just a very bad wizard.